Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. Each episode is a deep conversation with a carefully chosen peer about not just houses, but place. Yeah, of course we talk about houses and retrofits, but we also want to change the industry for the better, forever. Energy poverty, community engagement, industry disruption, societal responsibility, and climate change. It's all here and so much more. Welcome back. Shauna here. My guest today is just as sassy as I am, which is why we have a mutual respect and admiration society for each other. We both believe you can be stylish and uber smart. Of course, in any industry, but especially this one. The one of a kind, Amalie Caron, is who I'm referring to. She, too, was one of the very first energy advisors in Canada. And today, she's a building scientist at EcoSynergy a company based in Airdrie, Alberta. EcoSynergy helps you turn your existing home or brand new build into a highly efficient, cost-effective green home. Welcome, Amelie. Thanks for joining me today. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, we were just saying that uh, you had uh, had a conversation with uh, with Angela Buscamente at Building Knowledge, and you're like, yes, well, when's my invitation coming? Hey, voila! I didn't expect one, but I was, I had a bit of a chuckle when, when I got the invite, I'm like, oh, well, look at this. <laughs> nice. So you and I, I think, started as energy advisors somewhere around the same time, I think. I got my license in 2001, so you were just before me. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I was before that, yeah. And then mm-hmm. I was sort of like, I was out of the field shortly after that with more babies. so what was it like for you back in the day when you started oh well what was it like it it was barely existent back then Mm -hmm. um in quebec r2000 was pretty strong and that's where i got my roots from with one of Mm -hmm. them first in the province at the time i didn't really know much about it i kind of just fell into it i i just knew that so i was trained as an architectural tech and um I went to work in an architectural firm and it took me about four months to realize that I couldn't work in darkness all day. So I, uh, I reverted to uh, doing outside site visits and site reviews and, and that's what I really like doing. So I went to, um, I was, well, I looked in a phone book, right? The yellow pages. Oh yeah. We don't have now we're, we're dating ourselves. Now early. we're dating ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> I went to the yellow pages and I found this uh, home inspector guy and uh, I just called him up. And that's how I met my first mentor. And then I just drank the Kool-Aid. Uh, Joël Legault. Okay. He's he's in Quebec. He's one of the larger groups now. He has a large team. Okay, And cool. uh, yeah, he was my first mentor. And um, and then I went on to uh, being a building ins- uh, city inspector and then a warranty inspector. And then I moved out to Edmonton in 2007. And then... And that's I opened, what you've been, you, you've opened Eco, Eco Synergy huh? in 2009. In two, okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and before you got into, so you were architectural technologist, but did that training give you any background in building science? This is always my key question. No, 
<laughs> Zero. You're just you're just drawing what somebody else says when you do that job. That's actually not how that job works. <laughs> no, and uh, funny enough, I remember. Um, well, first of all, I wasn't really good in school. I guess the the way teaching works didn't quite work for me. So I had passing grades, but I was certainly not a, you know, it's only at the master's level that I really excelled. But uh, high school wasn't easy for me. And um, but in college, when I got to CEGEP, which is the equivalency in Quebec, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they teach us about all those details and how to just mechanically put stuff together. Right. And I found that. Now, with experience, I look at what I was learning back then, and uh, there wasn't much um, linkage to reality. Like, there was a lot of details that we could draw that really couldn't be built. Mm-hmm. You know, that you could see there was a huge gap in theory and practical. And yeah. Then, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting, because that's what, when I started down this road, um, my c- cousin, who was a general contractor, I said that I was I wanted to go back to school at age 27 to become an architect. Hmm. And when I had this conversation with my general contractor cousin at some family get together, he said, "Oh, right. Well, you better actually get out on sites and learn how things go together because architects don't actually know how to build things." And I know that that is a giant blanket statement, but yeah. um <laughs> yeah. And then I went to BCIT um, oh, yeah. and and did building technology there, and same thing. I mean, I dumped out after the first year because I asked them about this newfangled R2000 program and what's that about, and they were like, mm, no, next year we're teaching you how to... It wasn't West yet, yeah. Yeah, and we're going to teach you how to do, uh, you know, how to build or do, uh, specify concrete block buildings. So I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm 27. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I'm at school for a purpose, and it was, you know, so anyway, but uh, yeah, crazy. They've come a long way. I mean, they do learn more of it now, but they also just touch it in university. They, I don't know that it's part of mainstream curriculums mm-hmm. uh, still yet. Um, I think there, there's a lot of reliance on the engineering field. Right. On the flip side, they don't really like that because they feel that engineering is kind of taking a little bit their scope away. It's kind of a bittersweet thing happening there, I think. Right. But, uh, and I, I, we have, we have an architectural technologist on, on staff here um, who does a lot of our um, illustrations and, and, uh, and detail work. And he actually put himself through the passive house program. And that's where he learned about building science. He didn't mm-hmm. learn about it. And he's, he's not a very, you know, he hasn't been in the field for for many years, um, but that was sort of surprising to me that that's where he learned about building science at this, you know, in 2021 with the codes all having energy conservation requirements in them. And anyway, that's how things that's are. That's construction. That's yeah. our industry. Somebody's yeah. got to lead it. Yep. Here we are. Here we <laughs> are. We're it. We're it. Yeah. <laughs> So we've talked about building science, and we describe ourselves as building scientists. What's your definition of a building scientist? Well, that's, yeah, that's how I call myself, and, and here's why. Um, a lot of the university programs around building science 
as far as I know in Canada, last time I checked, I did my master's in 2010, so 10 years later. Uh, anyways, at the time, they were mainly driven towards mechanical engineering and a slight touch on envelope insulation assemblies, hydrothermal, so vapor travel, air mm -hmm. leakage. Like they barely touched on any of it. Uh, because on the commercial realm, a lot of the um, science, quote unquote, well, it's simpler because everything is exterior and it's very mechanically driven. Right. But in wood structure, um, it's a whole other ballgame. And so I always felt that the building science, and I'm, I might come across a little blunt on this one, but the different Go building science departments in um, larger firms, uh, they really seem to be envelope troubleshooting groups that may or may not rebuild the building the way it was. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when I did my master's in, in Austria, um, over there, building scientist is a, is a real quote unquote profession. And, uh, they, the way they, they describe themselves is that texts in, in Germany and Austria don't exist. So architects and engineering texts don't exist. Uh, they have architects that have an understanding of engineering and they have engineers that have an understanding of architecture. Mm -hmm. So when you bring in the building science piece, they actually don't just look at envelope, but they look at comfort, thermally, visual, all the different types of comfort, uh, glaring, um, indoor quality, not just vapor control and, and um, humidity, but also pollutant control. Right. Uh, they look at seven different branches of physics, which is very different, I find, than what we see here. And mm -hmm. the biggest piece that we don't talk about here is the human interaction with the building. Right, right. It's so behavioral piece. That's where, that's where um, Robert Bean and Healthy Heating have done a great amount of work here, yes. talking about um, thermal comfort, versus mm -hmm. a heating system, talking about occupant comfort. I mean, he is just super fantastic. I read everything he writes in a uh, forum. So I wanted to talk to you more. Like, like tell me some more about your master's. So um, I understand it's um, building science at the Danube University in Austria. Yes. And so, so like, how did you find out about it? <laughs> uh, in 2010, uh, during the Olympics, uh, oh. The Austrian gave a passive house to the mayor of Whistler. Well, they built a that kind. Whistler, yes, they built a passive house for the Olympics in Whistler, and they handed it over to the mayor of Whistler. And I was working on a lot of lead projects at the time with Ecoamo, and so we were invited to the ceremony. So we went to Whistler. And that's where the Danau University presented about their program at that ceremony or event. And so I came back home and I said, I got to do this. And I went to the bank. Wow. <laughs> and that was wow. It. Very cool. So I understand your thesis was a comparison of the net zero energy house and the passive house programs or approaches. Standards, yeah. Yeah, in regards to life cycle cost carbon emissions, construction feasibility, and primary energy requirements. And that sounds very juicy to my little building science won't get heart. But can you explain what all that means to our listeners 
and what your findings were? So there's always, yes. Um, so what we, what I did is, um, it was for a house built in Edmonton and it was also for a house built in the current sprawl kind of thing. So Europeans don't really have sprawl. Everything's kind of compact built up. But in mm -hmm. Canada, we have such a thing as high density single family developments. Right. Right. The houses are just close enough so they may not aren't attach attached. Yeah. 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 Right. That's yeah. it. Right. And so what I did is I wanted to know. Uh, so I worked on the Belgravia Net Zero Energy House, part of the Equilibrium Program in mm -hmm. 2008 or nine. Yeah. And I took that house and I remodeled it in the Passive House workbook. So what I wanted to do is which one of these two standards uh, would be best suited for a house built in Edmonton with the current grid, the electrical grid and, 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 and all those factors. So construction feasibility was an aspect that we have to look at. Um, not every trade out there can build a wall that would be an R40 wall, mm -hmm. and especially 10 years ago. Better yet, um, from the calculations I had, uh, the net zero Belgravia um, was about double the amount of energy intensity that the passive house would allow. So a passive house is 15 kilowatt hours per meter square per year of energy unit and dense, uh, density mm -hmm. and uh, intensity, sorry. And the Belgravia was around 33. Right. Now, Very to put difficult. that in context, a typical house is around a 120, 130. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that puts it in context. So still we were far away from the passive house certification. And so I played around with the house assemblies to find out that we would have to put like our 60 in the walls. We already had 100 in the attic. So it was getting really difficult on the construction side. The other thing that I looked at was um, uh, carbon, uh, embodied carbon. So, right. so, so the carbon that is in the materials that you're using. That's right. So there's a lot of ways to calculate a carbon footprint. Uh, mm -hmm. It's all about transparency, right? You can go as far as manufacturing. You can go once it gets to site right. and to what products are available here, what kind of shipping we're looking at, that kind of thing. And then I also looked at primary energy use, which is how much energy is it quote unquote extracted to produce the house. Right. Right. And what did we have to do? And then um, the other one was um, they, those were the three main ones. I think there was maybe another one. Yeah. Life cycle cost. Life cycle cost. Yes. Right. Which so, is from when it's harvested or mined through when it is no longer useful and what happens then. Yes. Or what, by your definition. So mine right. was from the, the time the house is built to when it needs to be demolished. Okay. There's just life cycle. So the big difference between a net zero energy house and a passive house is that by definition, a net zero energy house will have some kind of renewable energy system on it. Mm -hmm. uh, could be carbon neutral, depending on which definition of net zero you're going with. And a passive house is you don't need renewable energy to meet the target. Uh, you could still use fossil fuel. You're just very limited in the amount that you can use. Um, but it's not necessarily carbon neutral either. Mm -hmm. So basically this was the whole thing. Okay. What's better, you know, slightly relaxed envelope system in a renewable energy piece or highly insulated and one for one grid electricity was kind of the debate. 
And the outcome of this whole analysis, basically, if, if I remember right, because I haven't opened it in a while, is that the net zero energy house is better suited for our climate in Edmonton um, for multiple reasons. Mainly, we don't get to pick orientation all the time, mm-hmm. right? Architectural guidelines, and we're learning more and more about all this now. And uh, also, um, the lot lines. I mean, R60 in a wall, that's that's a two almost two feet wide wall. Right. So right. how do you even manage that? I mean, our houses aren't very wide. So it kind of opened up a whole a whole conversation and uh, it was kind of neat uh, to kind of um, redefine active and passive systems at my thesis because the passive house standard considers um, solar energy as an active system. Okay. And so, sorry, when you say solar, solar energy as in solar energy that comes PV. in through the windows? PV, okay. PV, yeah, right. passive, we all get along. We all understand that mm-hmm. solar through the windows is a passive approach. But they consider solar generation as an active system. And what that means is that, by definition, the passive house center doesn't allow more than a certain percentage of active systems to heat the house. Okay. So there's right. a bit of a bias against solar. But when, and you have some kind of mechanical background, no? Mm-hmm. So an active system, by definition, is a system that requires pumps or fans. Right. This doesn't require any of that. It's a chemical reaction that creates electricity. So it was kind of interesting to challenge my thesis panel to this because they did have a bit of a biased approach to not rely on renewables to meet their target. Brill. Kick butt. It was good. They were super happy that I, it was, it turned out I had like a 92% grade. So that was all right. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. Well done, you. Right on. So I know that, you know, we basically live and breathe energy efficiency, obviously, because we're like, totally nerding out on this conversation. I'm like, I want to read your thesis. Oh, my God. I can say um, it to you, it's butched up, though. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I, I know what drives my passion for this. But what makes, like, what's the thing that got you all excited about this and keeps you excited about being in this industry? It's, it's funny that you asked that because I have a very different take on on this i am um, and, and i hope i'm not going to hurt anybody's feelings but i'm not somebody that is after climate change um i look at what i see myself as a an enabler and i'm a very realistic uh, person, there's a lot of limitations in what we do, and as much as we would love our industry to move fast, 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 it's just not the way it's it is. It's not going to happen. Yeah. And I don't believe that humans change. I I think that, um, and again, I might fluster some feathers here, but <laughs> if the more renewable energy system we see popping up, we're just going to use more energy because we're not going to get the guilt about using. Look at what happened with R2000. Exactly. R2000, I am totally with you on that. Like R2000 was like, woo, you get, you know, here's this little house and it's half as much energy as 
the conventionally built house. Isn't that awesome? Well, that's very cool. Now you could actually expand that and have twice as much house and still be only using the same amount of energy as those old houses. But now you have the big lifestyle house. That's right. And it's a semi or single detached and it's on a, you know, suburban lot and yay for sprawl and, (laughs) and car centric living and, you know, all the things that, um, that are never going to, when you, how many millions of houses are out in the suburbs? I live in one. I have a home office, so I don't have to commute too much, but the fact is that everything I do is car centric. I cannot mm-hmm. go and get my groceries. I might if I had a really nice electric bike, but then I would only use it on, you know, nice days right. because I don't actually have a safe road to ride a bike on. I have Peggy's Cove Road, which has very skinny, soft shoulders um, with uh, deep ditches on one side and the ocean on the other. And when COVID is not in play, many, many, many large buses whooshing down the road at 80 clicks an hour back and forth from Peggy's Cove and, you know, from from the the cruise ships to Peggy's Cove. Mm -hmm. I... Uh, no. You rely on your vehicle. Yeah. So do my kids. So does my partner. So does every. You know, it's a. But it's, a, it's those kinds of things that definitely keep us stuck in in places. Um, you know, and the same thing when people go, oh, well, I, I put in all of. You know, I changed out everything to LED lights. Great. Super. What you, you gonna do leave them the, on all night? Yeah. <laughs> What'd you do with the incandescent ones that were just fine? You tossed them. Okay, so what about Mercury? I mean, it's it's like when you start to chase down the, you know, either Funny upstream or downstream from what yeah. you have in your hand or what you're going to put in your wall or whatever, that's when we, uh, you know, there's huge disconnects there with people. There's no perfect solution. No. But to answer your question, what gets me ticking yeah. is just to understand how things work. Yes. Like, I love doing an envelope review and somebody just sends me a product that I've never heard of before and just nerding out, reading all the CCMC report, because, yeah, I'm a nerd like that, mm-hmm. and finding the loophole. Like, what did they submit? What did they not talk about? Why is this approved? Why is this not approved? <laughs> <laughs> and then going through the detailing. But I, I like the education piece, too. I like making this exciting, you know, going to site and training a whole building crew on detailing mm-hmm. and that's a lot of to me that's a lot of fun and uh, we get a lot of good laughs and it's just I guess I'm just kind of on a quest to make what we do exciting a little bit it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be boring and dry I don't find it boring at all I know that my kids once I start off on a tangent after a while I can see they look a lot like glazed donuts <laughs> but you know it's sort of like but there's something comes yeah, across your face. I'm like, I'm done. <laughs> but at the same time, my daughter has graduated from environmental science from Saint Avex, and she's going into environmental law with oh, like wow. looking at the intersection of feminist, environmental, indigenous, like how does all of that stuff move around? Um, and my son is going into the trades. So, you know, I hope you had something to do with that. I, hope, I think I hope I did. 
<laughs> I really hope I did. I'm going to claim it anyway. <laughs> and we're talking about interesting products. So I want to know what you think about Aero Barrier because Angela and I had a little bit of a, we just touched in on it when we spoke the other week. And I think it's a real game changer, and I want to hear more about what you're doing with it and around it. Well, full disclosure, we're an installer, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, um, when this was – anyways, we learned about it from one of our clients up north, and um, I dove into it, and I'm like, wow, you know, if this really works the way it can work um, – I think this is a game changer. I just think that now I think there's there's two there's two takes on it, right? You have the builders that are already at one air change per hour or less or better, depending on size of the house. And mm-hmm. they don't really need it or or they don't think they need it. Right. And then you get the builders that they're really just managers. They don't know nothing about construction and they rely on trades that kind of learn from their uncles, like not every trade is equal. Mm-hmm. And so depending on the qualifications or the level of experience that your trades have, then you get two very different products. Right. So on on the side of the, the groups that don't really understand any of this, um, I think it is a game changer uh, because all of a sudden you can get creative with envelope systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get rid of babysitting. Yes. Uh, with the shortages of trades, uh, now you don't have to screen trades as much. You can hire trades that are good but not exceptional. Right. right. You can keep more people at work. Right. And so you can also hire th- people who are – you can hire on your crews more specialists who do more traditional things like red seal carpenters or – Right. Or maybe even not red seal carpenters, but you can you can focus on that, and they can do a really good job of actually putting the structure together. And I think the you know the aeroberry means you have a, a trained crew come in, and they do a whole bunch of stuff. They, I mean, they take out so many steps. Obviously, there's still other work that has to happen in terms mm-hmm. of the air barrier, but but. Uh, many steps taken away, and then the pre-testing, so you know that you've actually hit that air change mark. Um, I think that those are really fantastic things for new builds, and I really want to know about um, the We're big elephant in the room. <laughs> We're doing existing with it. Yeah. Okay. So are you doing? Are you doing like a gut rehab, or are you doing? No, you're not. We don't touch the house. Okay. We don't take anything. We empty the house from its content, put it on a front can, like a sea can. Right. We protect the house like if it would be protected for paint. Okay. Like the floors, the chandeliers, the guardrails. We seal it up, take it down, put all the furniture back in. Okay. I know. <laughs> cool. Yeah. The only thing we do is we take off the cover plates of all the, the outlets, the switches. And the because ceiling fixtures, we bring them down just to allow a little bit more. Right, right, because those are, those are like always, They're the always. points of entrance. Yeah, always and, the problems. Yeah. And the sealant will go and seal at the source. So if it's a top plate, it'll seal the top plate. If it's a bottom plate, it'll go to the bottom plate. It does travel yeah, yeah. in the cavity and finds the path of least resistance. 
Yeah. So, so this we've is, done two already that were finished houses. That's amazing because that's been the biggest the biggest challenge. And and so you're you're seeing that the cost is reasonable to do all the the prep work. Well, it depends on how the owners want to handle it. Some are pretty game. And if they have a big garage, they might just put everything in boxes and move everything out to the garage themselves. Uh, some projects we did, we partnered up with a restoration company. Mm-hmm. And they come in and we just ask the homeowners to box all the small stuff. So all the stuff on the shelves, all the kitchen put in boxes. And when we just pile everything in the middle of the rooms and tarp it. So we don't even right. have to take out all the, the furniture if they don't want to. But we do recommend it. Uh, that being said, the, our first case study, we left everything in there and we didn't box anything. And the outcome was uh, six exchanges per hour down to 1.3. It was a condo unit at the top of a building. A lot of added grain challenges. Yeah. And once we were done, they had, I think, 50 bucks worth of dry cleaning. Some sealant got on a little bit of their clothes and a little bit of the furniture. So I gave them 100 to thank them. I paid for their dry cleaning. And they mentioned that, uh, and we didn't think about that at the time, but all the cabinetry, whether it was bathroom or kitchen, was actually stuck to a party wall or a partition wall. And so the sealant got into the cabinets and sealed, yeah, and then deposited on the plates and stuff. And so they had to clean some other things. But uh, otherwise, that was the worst case scenario. I mean, overall, I think that's still a success story. I'd say, I mean, you know, and lesson learned, just like, that's a pretty easy fix to move forward. But that's super Mm -hmm. exciting. Um, And I'm thinking about all the houses in Nova Scotia that have rubble basements and how do I deal with those? Rubble basement? Well, you need to poly that down and... And I just want to spray it. everything. Yeah. I just want to spray it all. I, you know what? I would spray. You could spray foam it, but the sealant's not going to work on a gravel yeah. ground. Yeah. But I would I would just spray foam that and then seal and then do air barrier on the rest. All right. Done. My work here is done. I'm going to change the whole province. <laughs> There's a dealer in Nova Scotia, by the way. Yeah, I know. She's going to be. It's a. Uh, um, oh, Kate. Yes. Marie. Marie Tate. Oh. Marie Tate, but I'm just trying to think of the woman's first name. Oh, Um, I don't know. Roxanne. Roxanne Tate. Roxanne is going to be on the podcast too. Oh, my God. Right on. (laughs) And we'll just keep talking about Aero Barrier. I mean, I think it's really, I know that she had been talking about um, working in townhouses or rental units and doing one unit at a time. Compartmentalization. Um, compartmentalization, which is fantastic for mm-hmm. for for buildings that have uh, so many shared surfaces. Which is great, but I hadn't heard anybody actually doing the whole house like you just mentioned. So that we did a condo unit in compartmentalization, and we did a single detach. Actually, we're going to do a third one this summer because that's going to be our house, my house. We're buying a house that was built in 2010, and if Everything goes well. It should be carbon neutral by Christmas. Sweet. And the only thing we're doing is doing aerobayer to cut down 30% of those losses. And and we're not touching the house. Hmm. Oh, man. I have to keep up with the carons. <laughs> hey, I try to walk my talk, right? I, oh, yeah. yeah I yeah, tell yeah, everybody no. things they should do. I try to do them myself so I can at mm-hmm. least know that I'm not BSing my way around. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm exactly the same way, but my house, man, is just like the shoemaker's kids. <clears throat> um, I just think going like way too fast to even think about doing my own house. But um, I did I did apply for the, uh, the, the CMHC grant. So my biggest thing is in this house, we have this really, it was a fad here in Nova Scotia, apparently in the mid 80s. Um, I have electric resistance radiant heat in my ceilings. Really? Actually, in the drywall. It's wi- wires in the drywall. Really? Yeah. It, no, okay. it's, not a, it's not a good idea. Well, it's different. <laughs> it's different, and it failed, and it doesn't heat you if you are, you know, if your feet are underneath your dining table. But it that's radiant. That's radiant heat. That's right. Whatever. But it's it's a problem for comfort in general. But not done uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm looking at actually putting in a mid-velocity um, cold climate heat pump. Wow. So use, using using a mid-velocity system to to deliver because we have ducting already in the house for an HRV. I was going to say maybe just an HRV would help. Simply because all you need yeah. is uh, friction to carry that radiant heat around. So if you get more yeah, no. movement in your house, it's not hot enough. The surface is not hot enough. No, the the surfaces aren't hot enough, and the system is broken. Some oh, the, it's broken. Some panels, some panels don't work. Oh. Um, and uh, and and they have uh, and they're sporadic, um, and they it's just a, it's a stupid system because if it's, it's broken. You know, I have to replace all the ceilings in my house with what? Um, but so I'm not going to. I'm going to put in a use the HRV ducting that's already in the house and and work with Dara Bowser. Do you know Dara? No. Nope. He's a mechanical system designer, um, and he's sort of a, a real specialist. Um, he was in Ontario and now has moved back here, um, and so we're going to work together to um, to create a whole hybrid system that will use your feet warm yeah keep us warm and then (laughs) um but i'm thinking that i you know one of the things i know about this house is it could use a little bit more air sealing i did some work on it a few years ago but the next thing is is this that's why i was asking you know very personal um uh, absolutely for for asking about the aero barrier and retrofits (laughs) But this is a big question because mm-hmm. there's a lot of units out there that could use this and it's yeah. not disruptive or very yeah. little. We're, we're talking three to five days. Right, which is Disruption. fantastic. And, 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 you know, I've been living in this house for nearly 20 years. It could use a really good clean out. You yeah. Know, I mean, we're not mucky, but we have a lot of junk. My kids have grown well, up so in the house, right? <laughs> when the people come back in, we need to bring in a cleaning crew after. So usually... The house is cleaner than when you left it. Yeah, I like it. So you get a, a, a free clean beauty out of your seal. <laughs> it's all, I mean, that for me is just totally worth it. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Somebody else do it. <laughs> I'm all about that. So this is, you know, here we are, we're talking all this technical stuff. How do we inspire more women to get into this world? You know, it, it's funny. Um, it seems Everybody's asking the same questions. Um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm going to tell you the same thing I, I told my other colleagues is um, I don't know why more women don't get into the technical fields. Um, 
some part of me wants to think that maybe they just don't believe they can do it. Uh, some part of me thinks that maybe they don't know that they can do it with kids. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, only, having, yeah. And that's really the, the, that's how I made it through. With your because children. I, with my children is because I had the flexibility to do this work from home and, and then be on, you know, on site when I needed to, but could manage my schedule around my kids. That was a big thing for me in terms of how I, I was able to manage being a single mom. Yeah, see, I chose not to have children because I didn't want to have to make that choice. I'm the kind of person that goes all in. That's probably not surprising to you. <laughs> I don't nope. do half measures. So um, I always thought to myself that I would have to – like some some people are capable of being – 100% the parent that they should be and 100% committed to their company. Um, I don't know that I was built to be 100% at both just because I'm so intense in what I do. I probably burn out before I get to the end. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to be in a position to make that choice. And, you know, when you're a child, um, the reason why your parents are not around is irrelevant. They're just not around. You only clue in when you're older. Mm-hmm. Right? And I didn't want to be in a position where I would have to do that to my kids. So at a very young age, I, uh, I figured that, you know what, I, uh, I kind of had a time frame. I figured if I meet somebody that is worthy, <laughs> right, <laughs> and I'm still with him and, and it all works out by the time I'm 30, then I might have a kid. Uh, but by the time I was 30, I, I was in a relationship. Um, but I, I wasn't seeing myself having children with that person. Not that he's a bad person. I just thought, you know, I, I wasn't sure. So I didn't want to risk right. that. So I just chose not to. Um, but I, I, I also think that it could be decades of conditioning, right? Still today, young women, little girls, you know, we're taught to be also independent and mothering and supporting. And I don't know, maybe it's just not something that many are. They, I don't even yeah. know that they think about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't I I I'm, I keep asking the questions and um, and get these huge ranges of of answers and thoughts from people. Um, and, you know, a lot of them roll around this thing about, well, what if I have kids or um, how do I how do I do that? And especially and, and then one of the things that comes up is is that's really heartbreaking for me after all of these years is, well, yeah, but is it safe for a woman to be out in the field? Oh, and I I'm like, you know, I had one really horrific um experience um that you know sort of put me out of sorts for a while but you know in terms of um like where i was really well two times i was really fearful for my safety but that's in a 30-year career all the rest of it was just you know putting up with people having bad language and saying rude things and turns out for the first little i can cuss it's better now people right out the windows (laughs) I think it's a lot in 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 the posture and and if you know your stuff because um, women in technical fields are known to work extremely hard. Mm-hmm. 
and they need to know their stuff. Well, and that's yeah, because it's it's like a stigma, right? The, yeah. It's just and and it's like when you're blonde. Okay, you wear blonde hair. Sometimes it almost feels like people are just waiting for you to screw up because you have blonde hair, and then just say, "Oh, look, she's blonde, so she's screwed yeah. up." Yeah, yeah. Right. Whereas when you're when you're a woman in a minority setting, it's almost a little bit the same scenario. It's exactly it's, the same. They're just yep. waiting for you to screw up. So you need to be on the ball. You need to know exactly what you're talking about. No ifs and buts. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I, I mean, found it does it. take a lot of strength and character to do that. Yeah, I I felt like I always had to put out you know, 110 or 120 percent to be accepted at the same Always. level that my my colleagues were cruising along at, um, you know, and I've said before that it's part of, you know, part of my personality is just to 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 dive down those rabbit holes and learn all the things because all the things are very interesting. Mm-hmm. And why wouldn't you want to learn them? Um, so that's part of my my just sort of my makeup. But but the fact that, um, you know, for many, many years, um, and, and, you know, I mean, it's given me lots of benefits now, but for many, many years, I had to have way more always in my head, be able to answer way more questions. And that's one of the things that I tell to a lot of the young women that I'm talking to who want to get in the field is you actually don't have to have the answers to all the questions. And, you know, you can fire you can fire those questions back at somebody. If you don't have the answer, you, go, you can fire that question back at them. And if they don't have the answer, you know, who's got the answer? How are you yeah, going to figure that out? What network do you have to figure yeah. it out? Yeah. 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 So it's, it's a... I have a funny story for that. Okay. Tell your funny story. So I was teaching the uh, R2000 Builder course here in Alberta. And um, obviously, we're not a lot of women in our field, just like a lot mm-hmm. of trades and, and construction. And here I was, you know, teaching to a group of 10, 15 builders, right? And they're all men, obviously. Mm-hmm. You get the odd young women, but they're usually in sales or, or you know, more like quote-unquote desk jobs. They're not necessarily in the field. Right. And at break, this this one guy comes and... He comes talk to me and he says, I have a weird, like, personal question to ask you. I'm like, okay, I'm an open book, whatever. Ask me whatever you want. And he says, what kind of man can be with a woman like you? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well. About a confident a man? That, <laughs> about a very confident man that doesn't get his pennies in a bunch if he's not the driving force of a household and... A guy that likes to do things that are a little different. And, and that's what I have as a relationship now. But I thought that was a really interesting question. Like, is that how I come across, like, unattainable? Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, that being said, my teenage years were a nightmare because of it. Because I wasn't always a business owner. But I've always had this drive, like you say. And I knew that getting in a minority industry, I'd have to work hard. Like, I went in with open eyes. I didn't go in thinking, oh, it'll be okay. Like, I went in and I, I bull, you know, mm-hmm. get my bull on and just put my head down and move through the pack. And I think, you know, still today, it's kind of a little bit the attitude that a woman or, or any person in a minority setting has to, to do. Yeah. 
it's not just women. I think it's also, uh, it also applies to other minorities. Yep. 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 Absolutely. It's funny because I keep thinking back to my, uh, the epiphany that I had that made me move from my job as an art director for a building products wholesaler to school to get into uh, what, you know, what I have ended up in. I never considered that I couldn't do it. So when yeah, you're talking about drive, it was like, well, I want to do this. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And, you know, and showing up at a, in, a, in this program at BCIT, there was 88 people there and there was eight women. That's right. That's usually the ratio, 10%. Yeah. 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 And so it was just go hard. And, I guess, uh, and maybe that's what makes you who you are is you don't ask yourself if you can do it. You just take for granted that you can and you go for it. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. the same way. Put me in all sorts of bizarre situations, but you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> it comes with adventure. But <laughs> yes, yeah, some of it is uh, pretty weird. But um, yes, I was uh, having a conversation a few years ago with somebody who about my life and about all these different places that I've lived and 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 things that I've done over the years, and they said, you know, your life sounds an awful lot like a Tom Robbins um, book. <laughs> <laughs> like um, he wrote, um, even cowgirls get the blues. Um, I don't know. I'm completely yeah. book illiterate. I read the building code and biographies <laughs> and financial books and investment. I'm I'm a data person. I have a hard time with <laughs> something that's just not useful. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I was. I have always been a voracious reader of everything. Like oh no, not completely really. indiscriminate. I'll read the Building Code, but then I'll read a novel, and I've got poetry books, and I've got you know cookbooks up the wazoo. I love books. I love books very much. Oh, <laughs> I'm just discovering them. I discovered saxophone last October. Wait, I want to. Yeah, I want to hear about that. I mean, I really. I don't want to actually. Well, maybe. Do you have it here? With you? Can we hear it? No. <laughs> no, I'm still really beginner. Uh-huh. I, cool. I, I can I can play Happy Birthday. And I played an easy version of Wonderful World. Nice. But otherwise, it's still very early stages. But that was one of those things where I just said, oh, I'll just get a sax. <laughs> and that was it? That was it? There was like... There was no... Well, I mean, the reason, so the whole snowball effect came from my master's because in Vienna, there's violin and orchestra everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? And I fell in love with violin. So I started with violin and that was two years ago. But then all the songs I liked, I tried to get the violin music sheet, but they were all on sax. So I'm like, okay, well, that's not working. So I put the violin down. I got myself a tenor. <laughs> and I said, okay, let's start all over again. And so that was as quickly my, I mean, okay, I can't do it with the violin, then I'll just get the instrument that I should be playing, and I went got myself a tenor sax. Well, it sounds <laughs> extremely logical to me. I like it's it. It's super fun. Yeah, cool. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'm always looking, like, for connections and threads and how things join to one another. So what are you taking from learning to play this new instrument and can it be applied to what we do in the field with energy efficiency in houses? 
I, I did nerd out. And I figured that when I play in a warm environment, I don't get nearly as much spit in my sacks as when it's in a cold environment because the grass doesn't condense. Right? I know. It's super nerdy. I love it. It's just perfect. (laughs) And the other thing that I really found is before I knew how to play all the fingers, like get all the fingering down, I was looking at it and I actually – started trying to figure out how it actually works. So why, what happens when you click this key and all the little things move? Because mm-hmm. the saxophone is built like a bridge, meaning that a bridge look is really a visual of all the load transfers. Okay. Right? So if you have a suspended bridge, you have two sticks and ropes. Right. And it's the load that determine the angle of the cables right and the height of the sticks so and the same if you look at a steel bridge right it's all the load of the bridge that have to work around the two roadways that give the look of the bridge it's a visual of load transfer right and a saxophone is exactly the same thing is it looks the way it looks because it's the most efficient way to to get the sound in a note huh very cool. I thought, this is so cool. I'm like, oh, it wiggles everywhere. And there's so many keys on there. I don't know them all yet. But <laughs> I'm like, oh, click here and that one pops up. Click here and, oh, this one pops up. Oh, oh. And it was super interesting. But, I mean, yeah, who does that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I love it. Nerds do that. Yes, nerds do that. And I'm sure there's that could probably add on a few things about, you know, cooking and stuff <laughs> that I've done. Oh, I don't um, use cookbooks, so I just throw stuff. That's really my only my only way that I'm fully creative with no rationale to it. My nose guides everything. Yeah. I cook like ratatouille. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> ah, and with that, I think we're going to wrap up. Now I'm hungry. So thank you so much for coming on today, Emily. I really appreciate it. Thank you. That's it for our episode today, and thanks for tuning in. Thank you for tuning in. This episode was produced by Blue House Energy, Podcast Atlantic, and Tanya Media. Subscribe and don't miss an episode. Leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time. (laughs) 